Welcome everyone. I'm Jeffrey Goodman, Director of Marketing and Development for the YMCA of Northwest Louisiana. And we're here at 318 Latino Studios for Shreveport Bossier, my city, my community, my home. And our guest today is very special. It's Dr. Asgar. So Dr. Asgar, thanks for being here. Oh, really my pleasure. It. Thank you for having me. Of course. Uh, it's such a delight. And uh, I was really looking forward to coming here and chatting with you and maybe trying to answer some of the questions that you might have. I, th I think you'll be able to. So I'm looking forward to it. Well, let me tell everyone a little bit about you. Okay. Um, you are a clinical assistant professor of pediatrics and neurology at LSU Health Shreveport. Mm -hmm. One of your areas of expertise is something that affects every single person in our community, sleep. Yes. I would like to discuss both pediatric and adult sleep with you today. Uh, you see patients who present a wide range of symptoms because of sleep difficulties and sleep disorders. Let's start here today to give people a sense of the type of cases that you see. A five-year-old is seen in your clinic. Mother says that he has a hard time breathing at night and snores loudly. During the day, he is inattentive and almost hyperactive. Mother denies daytime sleepiness. Walk me through some of the steps you might take to diagnose the above case. Okay, so we have a five-year-old coming in, and uh, main symptom is difficulty breathing at night. That's what you said. And uh, I can't remember, did, does he snore? Let's see. Yeah, he snores he loudly, snores has a hard time breathing at night, okay. snores loudly. But he's not sleepy during the day. Correct. Which is kind of interesting. So um, snoring is a very common symptom. Children have it. Adults have it. And children can have it as young as little babies. So a five-year-old is, I think, not uncommon, school-age group, to have uh, snoring. So the first thing, you know, when children come in with a symptom of snoring, you want to make sure you check their tonsils. Because a lot of times, snoring is because of big tonsils that are obstructing the airway. So when I see a child like that coming to the clinic, first, firstly, I'll go through a big history. I'll, I'll you know, find out when did they start snoring? How has it progressed over time? Is it any better? And then very importantly, I, I want to know how that child is functioning. Because if it is snoring related to obstructive sleep apnea, or really having obstruction at night, that means that your sleep is disrupted, which means that you're not going to do very well during the daytime. So you may be sleepy, you may be, uh, children can be irritable, uh, they may act out, uh, they may, the grades may go down because parents always complain that we don't know why they're not doing as well as they did. So these are well, some of the symptoms that I, I find. Let me interrupt one sure. second, just I'm curious hearing you speak. When I was a kid, I felt like, more, I don't know what the statistics were, honestly, but when I was growing up, I felt like more than half of the people I knew got their tonsils out when they were young. And then it seems like nowadays it's less common than common. Is that true for, for a young kid to have their tonsils out? Is, that, is it less common today than it is common? I think so, you know, because now I think you want to go by what you're finding in that child because not everyone who snores is going to have large tonsils. I mean, large tonsils can be very common, but it doesn't mean that all those children have to have that, them removed. And so once I, I find out what the history is, then I do the exam. And in sleep medicine, we focus a lot on this area, head and neck. And so one, one part of the exam is looking at their tonsils. So if I see that they're very big and enlarged, then immediately the first thing I do is I'll refer, him, refer them to ENT, ear, nose, and throat, because they can really look in and objectively give a good assessment of whether those tonsils need to be removed or is it some other route we need to go. A lot of times ENT will say that they need a sleep study first to make sure this is not obstructive sleep apnea. So that's what we do. And then I have to figure out, well, is the snoring because of something else, not, not really tonsils? Maybe the child has got um, 
you know, um, a deviated septum in their nose, or maybe a child might come in with a congenital syndrome. That means that maybe there is an abnormality with how the mandible and the maxilla and the nose developed. And that's why now the child is having snoring because of that. And so that treatment is going to be different rather than, you know, going to ENT. So it all depends on you know, what kind of symptoms and what kind of exam I find in that child. But in your case, this child is not sleepy during the daytime. So then I have to figure out if the tonsils are not enlarged, what is it? So while we are waiting for all this to get in place, because ENT, sometimes the waiting list can be quite long. So what I'll tell the mother to do at home is to make sure that they sleep on their side, not on their back. Because if you sleep on your back, your snoring is much worse. But on the side, you sleep. And also, if you put a couple of pillows to keep that airway pushed in front, then it's less obstruction at night. I also wanted to add, sometimes, you know, when your tonsils are big, but they don't need surgery, a lot of times um, they'll put you on something like uh, Montelukast or Singulae or an anti-inflammatory medication to take that inflammation down. And sometimes the snoring will improve. Now, last but not least, if you have a five-year-old who's very chubby, because, you know, when you have a child, be it an adult or a, a pediatric patient who has a lot of weight and has a big, thick neck, sometimes that excess weight of the skin can also make, you know, you, you breathe very noisily at night. And so if that is the case, then you want to be you know, very um, diplomatic about it and talk about, you know, what, what I really go into details. I ask a dietary history, you know, sleep history, and I try to make some helpful suggestions. Uh, and maybe that might also help with controlling that. I hope that answered your yeah, question. That's perfect. That's perfect. <clears throat> and I've, I've heard you speak about a variety of factors that might assist someone, child or adult, who consistently has difficulty sleeping. I've heard you suggest, among other things, a worry diary, melatonin, teas, and lavender oils. Can you outline some aspects of what you would consider good sleep hygiene? Wow, what an excellent question. And I love talking about that. I just love it. Uh, and I love it so much because Sleep hygiene is, you know, it's, it's something that we take for granted. We say it's mundane, but these are the things that really affect how we sleep at night. So some of the things that, you know, I talk to my patients about those who can't sleep at night is, you know, what are you doing right before sleeping, right during bedtime, and when you get up? So, you know, right before sleeping, first of all, you need to have a nice environment, meaning you need to have a, a clean bed, preferably not cluttered with things, because otherwise you're not going to want to sleep. You know, you'll be distracted. And then you also want to make sure that the temperature is kind of cool, but not too cold. And also that there's not um, noise around, if at all possible. If there is a lot of noise, of course, you can you know, you can put on white noise or maybe a fan or something like that to take that away. And then, of course, what are some habits that you do, you know, right before going to bed? Uh, for adults, are they having their last smoke before bedtime? Because nicotine is, is stimulating, it's going to make you feel awake. Uh, then some adults will have a glass of wine before going to bed. Alcohol is fine, wine is good because it makes you sleepy. But the problem with that is it causes early morning awakening. So after a couple of hours, you're up and you're like, I can't sleep. So that's a problem with the alcohol. These are for adults. In children, of course, you don't want to be having sodas right before going to bed. They say spicy foods are not very good. You don't want to go to bed on an empty stomach and feeling hungry. So if you want to have something, cheese and crackers is a good option, or milk. Apparently, if you take warm, lukewarm milk, it's very nice in inducing sleep. And then I think you mentioned melatonin. So in spite of everything, I mean, if you still find that I can't sleep, I'm keeping a regular schedule, I'm going to bed at the same time, I'm getting up at the same time, and still I can't sleep, then definitely melatonin is a good option. So melatonin is naturally, um, it's a hormone that's secreted in our body by the pineal gland. 
And the pineal gland, it's very interesting. As soon as it starts getting dark, the pineal gland stimulates the production and the secretion of melatonin. And melatonin is what makes us sleepy, makes us feel sleepy before going to bed. Um, it's available in all forms. It comes as a gummy for a child or tablets or even a very young child, it comes as drops. So it's, you know, you can get it. You can get it from Amazon, Sam's Club, wherever. The, the thing about Amazon, though, I mean, not Amazon, melatonin, you have to be careful about is that it's not really, you know, regulated. So it's good, you know, to mention to your doctor that I want to try melatonin and this is what I'm doing. And initially you start off with a very low dose, like one milligram or three milligrams. You take it 30 minutes before bedtime and you slowly increase it every, say, three days or so. The maximum is 15 to 20. Now some pediatricians, some doctors will consider that too high. But you know, I think that um, 15 to 20, it's not harmful. And if it does induce sleep, then it's worthwhile, you know, um, being on that particular dose for a period of time. Because then if your sleep is regulated, you can take um, a time when you're on vacation and don't take your melatonin. If parents are worried that, you know, that higher dose may cause you to get, say, used to the melatonin um, you know, as such. But um, young children, I, I, that's how I dose it. And, um, and then I'll get the mom to update me every week. But the tricky thing about it is that melatonin reaches a plateau with the dose, meaning that after 15 to 20, if it's not working for you, it doesn't matter. You can go to 30 to 100 milligrams, ain't going to work because it didn't work at, at that dose. So and, that's for those are, and for those out there who are new to the term worry diary or worry, is that what worry diary? Can you talk a little bit about what that is sure. and how, how that might assist someone who is having difficulty sleeping? Okay, and a great, again, very uh, good question. So say you take your melatonin, and uh, typically I find this in teenagers or young adults, they have what we call psychophysiological insomnia, meaning when we go to bed, there are things that we're thinking about, maybe things that happen during the day or things that are going to happen tomorrow. So when, when that happens and I'm talking to, say, a teenager and these are the things that they're telling me that's interrupting their sleep, I get them to fill in a worry diary. So what is a worry diary? Worry diary, um, I tell mom, you know, buy a very attractive-looking diary that the teen teenager chooses himself you know that they like that they'll want to go and do it something cool and you can get all kinds of diaries um you know out there and so what you need to do is in about one to two hours before bedtime open that worry diary and just write down things that you think you know happen during the day that you might think of right before going to bed things that might be bothering you or write down things that you are concerned about tomorrow, like, uh, you know, I don't know how I look in this particular dress, you know, that sort of things. Keep writing them down. And you do have one to two hours. So if it's the dress that's bothering you, take out that dress, you know, and, and finish those things before you go to bed. The idea of the worry diary is once you've written all your concerns, you close it and you keep it by your bedside so that if you're going to sleep and you think, oh my gosh, you know, this thing is coming in my head, then you tell yourself, I've already written it down. I don't have to worry about not forgetting to worry about what I'm worried about the next day because that's the problem. People are too worried that they'll forget to worry about all these worries, right? But then you've listed them, you've written them, and it's there, it's documented. And even if it's a new worry, you can quickly drag, grab that diary, quickly write it, close it, and put it away. You're done. So I think that helps uh, you know, a lot with controlling those kind of thoughts that come in your head. Absolutely. Okay, so we're, we're all spending more time, children and adults, in front of our screens. <laughs> Can you share some recommendations around screen use? For example, how long before we go to bed should we turn off our computers or phones? Again, very good question. So um, we all know that the trouble with a laptop, with um, your phone, is the blue light. And what happens is that comes in and it suppresses or decreases that 
release of melatonin. So if you don't have melatonin, boom, you're wide awake. I don't feel sleepy. So timing wise, I think maybe about, and it again depends on everyone, maybe an hour or an hour and a half. That's the time when I think you should stop uh, doing your phone. I mean, if you really can't finish and you have to do something, maybe half an hour before bedtime. And, and you know, you, you stop using your, your laptop or your iPhone. And if, you know, you still have to work when you come back from work and it's evening, try and put a screen protector. And you can get that, which will cut back on the blue light that comes in your eye. And the other thing I've seen is that most of us are iPhones. They go into a dark mode you know, in evening time, and that really helps. The other thing I found on Amazon, which is really cool, is these orange-colored glasses. They're orange or even transparent, and they apparently cut uh, blue light from coming in. I've tried the orange one. It looks pretty cool, and it works. So those are some things that you can do, and it's not... It's not effective lying in bed, you know, with your watching Netflix on your laptop. And, you know, I'll tell you that I do that myself sometimes, you know. And sometimes I find myself, you know, looking at my phone, the last text of the day, the last message of the day. That's really not, not advisable. And then sometimes if I can't sleep, I have no one to blame but myself because, you know, um, I have to be more mindful of what I'm doing if I'm to tell my patients to do that, I have to look at myself as well. So those are some things that, you know, you could do to cut back on blue light before going to bed. And uh, let me see if there's anything else. We talked about the screens, the glasses, limiting your time. And children, uh, I think for children, it's all these video games. Oh, my gosh. They're so disruptive, so much stimulant. And, and sometimes they watch these obnoxious cartoons, sorry, like SpongeBob and all. And it's not obnoxious. It's fine. But it's very bright. The color is so bright. And so what happens is they're watching it at night. Of course, you're not going to feel sleepy, you know, because it's too much stimulation and too much light at night. And do this in a terribly fair question because I didn't give you an opportunity to prepare stats but do in, in your experience do statistics show that more people children and adults are having trouble sleeping in today's day and age because of all the screen use or is it similar to how it was let's say 25 years ago when people were in front of screens less and um, I don't know the exact numbers but I think it's more because our lifestyle has changed even for children, um, there's a lot of work that kids have to do, which maybe some of us didn't have to do that much homework maybe 10, 20 years ago. But now it's more and more work that they have to do. And all that work is on a laptop, you know. And then for us, some of us, you know, we have to do two, three jobs. We're doing that. And so what happens is that we're all the time using our laptops or our phones to try and, and get things done before going to bed. So I, th I believe in today's age and the way we live, it's definitely more than what it was before, definitely. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing more and more about people, children and adults, going to sleep labs and participating in sleep studies. Talk to me a little, if you could, about what sleep labs and sleep studies are and how do you determine that someone needs to go to a sleep lab or undergo a sleep study? Nice. So two, two parts of the question. So first of all, who needs to go and get a sleep study done at a sleep lab? So this is someone who comes in and is snoring like the Dickens. Not only snoring, but they are stopping breathing while they snore. That's troublesome and, and that's worrisome. How do you know, how does that person, how does the person know they're, they're... Stopping breathing is because, again, very good question. You might get up in the morning and you might have a dry mouth or your spouse is the one who is seeing you or watching a child sleep and they notice that, oh my gosh, they've stopped breathing and then they, you know, have a gasp and they start breathing again. So someone who's doing that and is tired, fatigued during the day, right away they make criteria for getting a sleep study done. And so those are the ones I'll send for a sleep study right away. You can order it, it's, it's easy. Now, what's a sleep lab? So a sleep lab is a place where you would get the sleep study done, meaning you have to sleep in the lab 
while they are getting your sleep study. So first of all, a sleep lab is a very inviting place. Our sleep lab here at LSU is state of the art. I mean, I wouldn't mind going there and sleeping. It's a beautiful bed. They have a huge big TV and um, you are monitored throughout the night. It's very comfortable. There's a beautiful view because the idea is, you know, it's a different place. It's not your usual bed. So we, we want you to sleep. So that's why you make it very inviting and interesting. And for children, we allow the mom to go in and sleep in the bed with the child. And so um, what does it entail? So it entails coming in the evening around 6 or 7 p.m. A sleep technician will be there to meet um, the, the patient and the sleep technician actually stays throughout the night. They're very well trained because while the study is going on at night, they're looking at it so they can tell if something, they need to make an acute intervention, meaning if they have to give oxygen or they have to um, you know, do something or call the doctor, they're trained to do that. So they're very well trained. Now, once you go in, now comes the fun part because you have to have all this stuff on you before we do the sleep study. So first of all, we have to have leads on your head. These are called EEG leads or electroencephalogram leads because they look at your uh, brainwave activity. With the brainwave activity, we are able to tell whether you're in stage one, stage two of sleep, or deeper stages of sleep, or REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep versus non-REM sleep. So it's very important. Without EEG, you cannot tell properly which stage of sleep you're in. So they put EEG leads on your head and then you have two uh, cannulas on your nose to look at airflow. And then you have pulse ox to look at your oxygen measurement during the night. You have EKG leads to look at your heart rate. And then you have leads on your arm and your leg to look at movements because many people have periodic limb movements at night. So you want to measure that as well. And then you have two belts on the thorax and the abdomen to see how much air you're breathing in. So that's a lot of things that you have to wear at night. That's why we like the place to be so entertaining. We like a big TV because we want you to relax. And once all this is on, mostly I think people do, most people do get to sleep. Some people cannot sleep and that becomes an issue. Sometimes we'll say, well, maybe a little melatonin before you come in. Because remember, if we're trying to look at your sleep and you take a sedative, what happens is that you know, the brain waves are suppressed. So you can't really get a good measurement of what you're doing at night. Now in kids, what we do is I take a lot of time. I have a, I have a little cartoon that I talk to them and I show the child what is going to happen to you when you come for the, uh, this, uh, for the test. Some of them get really scared and then I'll go to Google and I'll show them pictures of kids with everything on, you know, for them to feel comfortable. And um, then we answer any questions that the mother will have. And so at night, all this is going on. The techs are outside. If a lead becomes loose, they'll come and they'll put it on. And, and, and yes, so one question is, how do they get the leads on your head? You know, why don't they fall off? There's a special, it's kind of like a glue that they put it on and it stays throughout the night. Um, so um, in the morning around um, 7 o'clock, um, the study is over, the tech comes and removes everything, and voila, you're good to go. The, the fascinating thing about a sleep study is it's not only diagnostic, it can become a treatment modality as well. And how does that happen? In the first two hours of sleep, if you have a lot of obstructive events, a lot of obstructive sleep apnea, the rest of the night they can start the treatment, and we know the best treatment for obstructive sleep apnea is a CPAP machine. What's a CPAP machine? It's a mask that pushes air under pressure. The air is connected to a machine that adjusts the pressure with which that air goes either through your mouth or through your nose or through both. And what that does is it keeps your airway open. So it doesn't allow it to collapse on itself and make you snore at night. And that's very cool because if you need a CPAP, the rest of the night, they find out which pressure, because they can see on the sleep studies which is the pressure that will get rid of the obstructive events. And so when you're done, you know what CPAP pressure you need, you've got a diagnosis, and then it's so cool. We just order the machine and you're done. 
And I hope that answered no, the whole thing about the sleep study. That's perfect. In a, in a minute, not right now, because I think my final question has to do with sleep apnea, and I really want you to define it and talk oh, more sure. about it. But before we get there, um, I'm also hearing more and more uh, cases of Tourette's. So can you tell me a little about Tourette's syndrome? What age is it typically first diagnosed, and what are some symptoms that might suggest a possible case of Tourette's? Okay, so Tourette's, we're kind of shifting gears. Yeah, we're looking at more, <laughs> more like a neurology um, question. So Tourette's now, Tourette's is interesting because you have to have criteria in order to make Tourette's. So Tourette's, Tourette's means that you have a tick of some sort. And what is a tick? A tick is an abnormal movement that you have to do. And if you don't do it, then, you know, you get very anxious and then it comes out even more. And these are examples are you can have motor tics, like things like, you know, shaking your head to one side. Or sometimes you see adults doing this, you know, they'll, they'll do that. That's a tick. Or sometimes you can have vocal tics, like <clears throat> <clears throat> doing that again and again. That's a tick. Or sometimes you can have sensory tics, like you have a peculiar sensation, like ants crawling up your leg, and there's nothing there. That can be a tick if it continues, uh, you know, uh, periodically. And then there are other ticks like vocal ticks where you say a bad word, you know, um, that is a tick. So there are different types of ticks. And ticks are interesting because they tend to be transient, meaning that they occur and then they get better on their own. They come and go. Sometimes right before age puberty, it gets really bad. And so when do they start? Usually, particularly, I mean, I've seen them it, as young as five years. Younger than that, it's really hard to say this is a tick. You know, you have to be careful uh, about that. And so uh, school going age in particular, that's a time when you see the ticks. And um, uh, ticks usually, as I said, they get better. But if they tend to get worse, then, of course, there are treatments available that can be used. But I don't usually put kids on treatment unless the kid says, I don't like it, or I don't like the way it makes me feel, or it's hurting my neck, or something like that. Then we'll look at treatments. But otherwise, usually it's behavior, meaning addressing the things that are making the patient anxious because ticks are exacerbated by anxiety. So if you're anxious, say if you're going in front of new people and you're anxious and you start ticking away, you know, that's typically what you see. And so if you're able to identify what circumstances brings out the ticks, then what you can do is you can do a little bit of deep breathing, relaxation, calming yourself right before that situation. And that, of course, would be um, appropriate for an older child that can identify these ticks. But a younger child, I mean, they don't know, you know, and sometimes it takes a parent to be very careful about that. Now, Coming to ticks in schools, I will have to say that a lot of times, you know, if a child is happily ticking away, he's not bothering anyone, nothing is happening, there's really no need to, you know, bring him to the doctor and, and, and you know, want some medication or something like that. And so a lot of times it's education. Because even in school, you know, if a teacher is noticing that and telling the parent, you need to bring that child in, well, maybe the teacher needs to just notice something else. Because it's not harming the child. If it's something like maybe flicking a pencil that's disturbing another child, it's education. It's just telling the other children that, you know what, this is something he has to do and it's okay. That's the way he is. It's fine. So if you are able to ignore it and you're not focused on it, the ticks get better. I had a, a, a mom come in with a kid and she told me that, you know what, he's um, <coughs> clearing... Uh, and, and moving his, uh, his neck 125 times in two hours. And then I was thinking, ah, uh, okay, you know, it's, it's too much observation, you know. If the kid is sitting there and he's doing, harmlessly doing his thing at home, I think we need to ignore it, you know, and just let him be, let him do his ticks. Because the other thing to think about is, you know, home is the safest place, the way they can tick without any repercussions, without anyone looking at them twice or thrice. So if you're gonna be so, 
notice noticing them so carefully at home then they don't have any safe place to tick right and as you get older for example you can even teach a child that you know what a safe place to do your ticks would be the restroom so control it when you get your break go into the restroom and do your ticks and then come out and you know go on and a lot of time that is after cognitive behavioral therapy so seeing a psychologist I didn't talk about uh, treatments there are treatments out there um, if it's very bad or if it's hurting the child or um, you know just incessant and and really getting very concerning then something uh, sometimes I like to try clonidine I'll use that um, and other medications out there that I don't use, this is then time to see a psychiatrist, would be things like Risperdal, because I, I don't really prescribe that. Uh, I have used Keppra. Keppra is a seizure medicine, and it has worked well, and I had have had a couple of children that I put on Keppra, and it has worked well. And you said typically the ticks are trans, transient or transitory. Um, what is, I mean, I know it has to vary from case to case, but typically what is what is an average time period time of a, a of a tick starting and ultimately phasing out within that individual so um i think right before puberty they tend to get better if they don't get better then puberty is the worst time it's at its worst and then after that it gets better on its own um the other thing to think about with transient ticks usually maybe you know some children start having ticks every time they start school you know whenever vacation is over we start school i have my ticks and then during vacation it goes away and then sometimes it doesn't follow any pattern you may have ticks for maybe one to two months and then on its own it gets better then again it comes back again and lo and behold now you have a different tick and then that's very worrisome and concerning to the parent but i think a lot of times it just takes time to educate and sit with them and i just wanted to say so these are all about ticks so when can you make the diagnosis of tourettes tourettes usually you can make the diagnosis when you've had ticks that are not one but several different types of ticks maybe a motor tick and a sensory tick and it has to happen for about a period of two years and then you can make the diagnosis of Tourette's. And there's a lot of information um, on Tourette's. I think there's a Tourette's Association of America, a Tourette's Society. You can go on it and uh, lots of information that you can get. But most children, I, I will say, tend to have just ticks. And ticks tend to be harmless and benign. And is Tourette's curable? Does Tourette's ultimately go away? Or Tourette's is, is something you're probably going to live with the rest of your life? once you receive a Tourette's diagnosis? Good question. And Tourette's, you know, I think maybe because I haven't seen um, very bad cases of Tourette's, uh, maybe, uh, you know, because, I mean, the kids that I've treated, you know, uh, over time it has gotten better. But I will say that um, there are cases out there of very bad Tourette's and you read about them having all these kinds of treatment like steroids and IVIG and all that stuff. And I feel that, um, uh, you know, one again has to be careful because uh, you definitely want to make sure it is indeed ticks and Tourette's and not a movement disorder. And so it will require a specialist because a movement disor disorder specialist, a neurologist, would be, I think, a good person to go to if they are very bad, severe uh, Tourette's or ticks. The other one is sometimes psychiatry because, uh, you know, in neurology, once I use the medications that I'm comfortable with, if they don't respond, then the next step is I'll send them to a psychiatrist. And usually psychiatry have a good, they use a good combination of medications to really control it. Because remember again, ticks are exacerbated by anxiety. So if you can control the anxiety, then maybe the ticks uh, will also get better. And sometimes controlling the anxiety will take a visit to a psychiatrist, a specialist. Perfect. So, Dr. Asgar, I'm curious, you know, what, what would be the results of maybe going a year, extended amount of time, um, not addressing chronic poor sleep or, 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 or uh, repetitive um, bad sleeping? So um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to 
do a two-prong approach. So what we're going to do is we'll talk about what happens if you don't take care of obstructive sleep apnea. What happens if you're snoring and snoring, you have disrupted sleep, you're tired, and you don't really do anything about it? What happens is that over long term, a year, two years, whatever, it puts you at risk for developing hypertension, diabetes, stroke, early death, infertility, everything under the sun. It's a really scary thing because, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we used to say, oh, you know what? He snores. His father used to snore. It's okay. It's not okay. Because if you have obstructive sleep apnea, it's going to put you, even if you're young, you know, it doesn't matter your age. It'll put you at risk for this, and over time, you'll develop it. There's an explanation for it, but maybe you, you'll get bored. It's, it's, you know, over time, what happens is these apneic episodes, when you stop breathing and your body arouses you, your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes up. If you're doing that 50 times an hour at night, think what's going to happen. So over time, it causes a surge of neuroinflammatory transmitters, changes, all that. And that's how you become then risk at risk and you may develop hypertension or diabetes. So that's one thing. Let's look at the other common problem, which is insomnia, not being able to sleep at night. And say you then ignore it, meaning I have too much work. You know, I, I just, I can't, I can't, you know, I can't do anything. I mean, I can't take time. I can't see the sleep person. I cannot change my sleep schedule. What happens over time? So over time, what happens is that it puts you at risk, meaning that you're not doing well at work. You, your performance comes down. You make bad decisions. You have drowsy driving on the road, which is so risky. Um, because then what happens is when you're sleep deprived, you get these episodes of micro sleeps, sleep. And micro sleep means for an instant, without you knowing, boom, you fall asleep. And it could be at the wheel. And that's so dangerous because within that split second, those couple of seconds, you can go off and you can have a, you know, an accident. And this is if you're not taking care of it over time with insomnia, you are sleep deprived. And then long term, what happens is again, it puts you at risk for all these things. And if you happen to have diabetes or hypertension, now the problem is it's aggravated because I'm not sleeping well at night. My medications are not working. I'm have to, I have to take more medications because my sleep is all over the place. The other thing to, remember, to think about, and there's been a lot of attention these days, sleep deprivation is a risk factor for Alzheimer's, having Alzheimer's over time. And in children, parents will say, you know what? He's not doing well in school. His grades are coming down. That's an issue. And so over time, we do not want to have this sleep debt that builds up over and over because one day it's going to, we're going to crash and burn. And then serious issues, if you continue like that, um, if you stay awake, say, for more than 72 hours for some work or something like that, you develop serious delusions, hallucinations, psychosis. And I just want to uh, remind everyone um, the Chernobyl disaster, nuclear disaster, was what they said was someone made a mistake at 1 a.m. of the night. I'm sleep deprived. And so sleep deprivation and not only Chernobyl, sometimes it happens at work. And that's why it's, you know, we did, I do this talk for sleep deprivation. I, I just did internal medicine grand rounds because you want to teach the doctors, the nurses, the residents, everyone. Because you want to take care of yourself and make sure that you don't, you know, if you need to sleep, you need to sleep. That's, that's it. And then carry on with, with your life. Last but not least, I will say how many hours of sleep you need. The AASM recommends seven, seven and above for adults. But I will say genetics sometimes. I know that there are sometimes some women who say I can do well with just five hours of sleep. So it just, it, it matters on your genetic makeup, but seven is the magical number. And in children, it depends on their age and how many hours they sleep. Perfect. Well, I'm going to circle back to <laughs> okay. uh, where we were previously. Um, I commonly hear people talking about sleep apnea and CPAP devices. Uh, you mentioned both previously. Uh, a few, I have a, a number of questions here, and I can go back to them later. If, um, 
just to keep them uh, top of mind, but my questions are, would you mind defining sleep apnea? How is it typically diagnosed? Does it exist in children and adults? And is it curable? So sleep apnea, so what does that mean? Apnea means cessation of breathing. You stop breathing. And sleep apnea means it occurs during sleep. So that would occur when you have obstructive sleep apnea. That's the most common cause that we see, uh, meaning that you're snoring, snoring, and then you stop. That's the apneic episode. And then you <gasps> gasp because your body arouses you saying that you need to breathe. And then you take that breath. Uh, a lot of times when your body arouses you, you're not even aware of it. And you could be doing it 50 times an hour at night. And so that you can imagine if you're doing that so many times at night, your sleep is going to be terribly disrupted. Now, um, apnea, um, again, causes in children can be big tonsils that are obstructing the airway. And yes, apnea is, you can see it in children. In very young children, there is another entity called central sleep apnea, meaning that it's making you stop breathing, but it's not obstructive, meaning the cause is not tonsils. Central means there's something in the brain, be it a Chiari malformation or something else, another abnormality in the brain that's causing you to have these apneic episodes. Central is brain, so central sleep apnea. And sometimes we see that in small children. Um, in, the, in the younger ones, like five years and above, then you, you commonly see less, less common to see central sleep apnea as compared to the obstructive sleep apnea. So how do you make the diagnosis? Of course, um, initially, you can make a diagnosis based on your history. We use a lot of questionnaires when we take a history. One questionnaire we use is called the Epworth Sleepiness Scale. The other one is the I'm Sleepy Questionnaire. So if your score, say, on the Epworth Sleepiness Scale is very high, and what is the Epworth Sleepiness Scale? It's a scale that measures how likely are you to nod off, fall asleep, in these circumstances. For example, are you likely to nod off when you're sitting and talking to someone? And then three would be high, two moderate, one slight, zero none. So we give a variety of different situations, ask the patient and we fill it. If your total is very high, that means that it's already an indication that, you know what, your sleep is disrupted and you're telling me you're snoring, more than likely you have obstructive sleep apnea. The other one is the I'm sleepy questionnaire. We use this in children very commonly. It's very easy. Yes, no answer for the parent. Questions like, is your child likely to fall asleep during school, you know, when he's not doing anything? Is he likely to fall asleep if you're driving for one hour without a break? And parent says yes or no. You calculate what's the score, and if it's high, that makes you think that, you know what, so the sleep is disrupted. So your history, if you have a history of snoring, stopping breathing at night, high scores on this, that's enough to say you're probably at risk for obstructive sleep apnea. And so I need to order a sleep study. Now sleep study is the diagnostic standard, the gold standard for diagnosing sleep apnea because they actually measure how many times at night you are stopping breathing, and then they calculate it. So, for example, if you have less than five events for an adult, five times an hour that you're stopping breathing, five to 10 is mild obstructive sleep apnea. 10 to 15 is moderate. 15 and above is severe obstructive sleep apnea. So that's a good indication to us as to where your obstructive sleep apnea is. In children, anything more than one is abnormal already. And so the sleep study gives us a good objective of what, how your sleep apnea is, what are you doing? Because some patients in adults, they can have complications, like they may have congestive heart failure, they may have COPD or something else. And so when you stop breathing at night, sometimes not only CPAP, they may need oxygen. So it just depends, you know, case by case. But the sleep study diagnosing sleep apnea is basically the history with the questionnaires, and then you do your sleep study, which is the gold standard. Did and, that answer then, the question? It did. And then a common solution is the CPAP from that point? Most important, I mean, I think right now, I think the best, 
uh, I'll, and I'll have to look at the figures again, but I think um, the, I mean, something, I mean, a treatment that would have the best um, results from it that we see right now is CPAP. Although I will say there are newer devices coming up because, you know, the problem is people don't like, they don't like things on their mouth or their noses at night. They feel uncomfortable. And let me ask you this. If, if let's say, let, let me just kind of recap the steps. So either my spouse or I say, I'm feeling tired all the time. I may not be sleeping as well as I should. I go and see a doctor. I take these questionnaires. They say you scored low or high or whatever the signifier is to say that I need to go take a sleep study. I go take a sleep study. Through the sleep study, it's discovered that I do indeed have obstructive sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that point, a CPAP machine is prescribed to me, and I begin CPAP treatments at home. Once you reach that point as a child or adult, is that typically your reality for the rest of your life, or is that also transient? Like the, in, in a year's time of, 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 of forging ahead on this path, and am I going to be able to have normal sleep without a CPAP, or am I probably going to be forever tied to a CPAP in this, uh, this relationship? Yeah. Great question. So the thing is actually, no, you don't have to wear your CPAP forever. Because the thing is that, remember that CPAP, obstructive sleep apnea, is also related to if you, you know, you have a lot of excessive weight. So while you start your CPAP, what happens is your sleep gets better. You have more energy, more motivation. Now you want to exercise, you want to watch your diet, you want to get, you know, you know, go do better with what um, you are doing and what happens is inevitably sometimes you lose weight and when you lo lose weight you might find that you know what I'm sleeping okay even without my CPAP so we can always repeat a sleep study and if you don't need it you don't need to have it so it's so cool the other thing which is I think so amazing is if you come in and you have congestive heart failure, you have very hard to control hypertension, and you have obstructive sleep apnea on top of it, you start your CPAP and sleep gets better, do you know, over time, your congestive heart failure and your essential hypertension may even get better. And so it's amazing and it's so, I mean, important to not to miss obstructive sleep apnea because it has life-changing, life-reaching changes in your life. Dr. Asgar, those are all my questions. Is there anything uh, you, you, you cover so many facets in your practice and uh, your area of expertise is, is wide and deep. So if there's anything else I didn't touch on that you feel uh, you'd like to share today or talk about, please, by all means. Yeah, I, I actually wanted to say one more thing because I mentioned that people don't like having the CPAP on, right? No one likes it. Um, these day and age, there are all kinds of CPAP machines, all kinds of masks, not CPAP machines, pardon me, masks. So some of the masks are so cool. They're just very least uh, intrusive. Some of them just sit on your nose. Others, are, of course, you like the heavy duty one, you want it to stay in place. That looks like Darth Vader type of mask. But those are, and for children, we have cool ones. Like there's one that looks like a giraffe, it's painted, you know, and I know there's for women like bright fuchsia and it comes in a cute case. Because the idea is, you know, we want you to use your CPAP. The other thing to keep in mind is insurance companies, you have to use that CPAP machine for more than four hours, 80% of the time. Otherwise, they can, they can take away the CPAP. So why I was talking about that is because I think the secret to success is desensitization, meaning that, you know, all of a sudden, don't expect you to like the CPAP, don't expect you to want to wear it, but try and get you used to it over time, bit by bit by bit. So in children, what I say is that, and, and believe it or not, they are kids, you know what? that don't make criteria for removing tonsils, what do you do about them? And they continue to snore like the Dickens and stop breathing, how do you help them? Those are the ones that probably need a CPAP. So how do you make it less frightening and interesting for a kid? So usually I tell parents is that use the CPAP 15 minutes at a, at a, uh, a time at home. Make it a fun game. Like pretend your child is Johnny the scuba diver. And so Johnny the scuba diver has his adventures at the bottom of the ocean. So he needs his mask, 
He needs his oxygen tank. And, you know, do it in the daytime. And while you're doing it, maybe watch uh, Finding Nemo or, you know, National Geographic looking at sharks. So your child is believing that they're the, you know, in the middle of the ocean. And you slowly build up that time until one day Johnny the scuba diver has his adventure at night. And, of course, he needs his kit. Otherwise, he won't be able to breathe. Now, with an older child who's not going to buy Johnny the scuba diver thing, what you can do is a reward mechanism, meaning that, you know what, if you, wa if you wear your mask 15 minutes during while you're watching your favorite program, then you get a reward. Maybe we'll give you extra time. Or maybe at the end of it, you get to pick something, you know, from the store. Or maybe we increase your allowance, something like that. Because the idea is compliance. Once you get compliance and you get used to it, people love it. I have had children, even children, an older child saying that, you know, they can't manage, they can't imagine use, not using their CPAP at night because it makes you sleep so well. So that is something I wanted to mention, desensitization uh, bit by bit. And so at night when we do a sleep study, you might want to start that with an adult, but in a child, we usually say come back for the CPAP titration study, meaning using the CPAP for the sleep study. Don't do it the same time on the same night because it's frightening for a kid. But an older kid, our sleep techs are so nice. They have different types of masks and they'll get you to try it and feel which one is comfortable and then they'll, they'll do that. So that was about desensitization. And let me see if there's anything uh, else that I want to just quickly say. We talked about melatonin. Uh, we talked about obstructive sleep apnea, uh, the insomnia. Um, <laughs> I don't know, there's, there's so many things, you know, sleep habits and things like that. But I think maybe um, if you don't have any other question, uh, and if anyone has any questions and would like me to go further into it, just feel free, contact me, and I would love, as you see, I love talking about it because uh, I think it's important. And I always feel, even with my patients, that even if I talked for, I don't know, 30 minutes and something, one thing is something that you could use, you know, to make your sleep better, I think I would have achieved something. Well, thanks. Thanks for the great work you're doing. And thanks. Thanks so much for making the time oh. to be here. We really, <laughs> my pleasure. We really appreciate Anytime. having you. <laughs> Anytime. Thank you so much. You all have a good day. Thank you for listening.